Thanks for tuning in to the Banner Church Podcast, recorded live in sunny Scottsdale, Arizona. For more information, visit banner.church today. Enjoy the message. Good job, Stephen. Just these tall, handsome men of God. That's what it's all about, bud. Oh, man. Good. It was a good week. I said this first service, but it was fun uh, to be there yesterday serving at Unite Phoenix. If you haven't been to Unite Phoenix, man, I really encourage you to go. You might see us post about it and say, hey, what is this thing that you guys do every second Saturday? Uh, And I really want to encourage you. It's an awesome opportunity to come and to serve. And if, if you've never served, then you might not know that it's a blessing to be a blessing to others. If you've never had that opportunity to really uh, speak into other people and, and encourage them, and honestly, simple ways that have huge impacts. And there's a lot of incredible organizations around this valley who are full of the Spirit and who are doing incredible things for the kingdom. And it's a blessing, even if you just come in to, to clean a window or, or, like, wipe some shelves down or sort clothes. And it might seem so small, but it is massive. It's, it's many small things that, that God uses to bring about great big things for the kingdom. And I love that about our Lord. It says it's not like, oh, you're too small, or your giving is too small, or your service is too small. He just, he sees like the widow's two, two little coins, and is like, that's exactly it. That's the heart. And I think sometimes, you know, I, I don't know about you, but I had a really emotionally exhausting week, and I probably could have got away with justifying not going. I think I could have swung it and been like, hey, you know, this is the week I've had. Um, but I was like, man, I, I, I know something, and I want you to know it, that when you go serve, you will be refreshed. I know that sounds backward. If you've never served, you, this sounds crazy to you. But trust me, try it. When you serve, you might be physically more tired. Like, I worked hard and it was a lot. But spiritually, emotionally, you're encouraged. It's renewing uh, to, to be a part of what God's doing. So I want to just encourage you guys, if you haven't done that, to come check it out. Because it's honestly a really good time. It's a blast. So second Saturdays, come to Unite Phoenix. But I also wanted to announce something fun. I saw Gabe and Melissa were here. And uh, they just got engaged. So shout out, wave the ring around, show everybody, nice. There we go. So if you see her worshiping with her hand up, like in the middle of the sermon, it's just a flex. Like, that's fine. Uh, But awesome. Super excited for you guys. Congrats. Uh, Excited for that. Uh, I, I just love this church. I love what God is doing. You know, it's, it's been great to see over this past season what the Lord has been doing. Um, you know, this morning is a really interesting day uh, as we begin a new series. It's a very important day for the history of this nation because it's September 11th. And it's not, I know, all the time that it falls on a Sunday, but when it does fall on a Sunday, I think it's very important for us to take a moment and to remember, you know, one of, one of the most significant moments in our nation in modern times and to remember uh, not only the lives that were lost, uh, but the lives that were given in sacrifice for the lives of others. I think it's important that, you know, though we say never forget, that, that we actually don't forget and that it, there's important things that happen that day and the following uh, weeks and months that are important for the next generation to remember. And it's really quick that as generations we forget things. I was talking uh, one time, I mean, this was a while ago when I was, I was helping out at, at a youth uh, event, and I was talking about September 11th, and some kid said to me, man, I wish I was alive in your time. And I was like, you are alive in my time, right? <laughs> right? But there's something about memory, I think, that we can move on and we say never forget, but, you know, we, we do forget. But I think it's important that we take time to remember. And 
not only be thankful for to live in a place where there are brave people who run into burning buildings, but I think also to remember that following the events of 9-11 as they were impactful visuals and trauma and loss, and we found out just how connected actually everyone is to each other, that many people knew people or knew people who had people there. It's surprising how, how short the level of connection really is and how connected we are really to something tragic in our nation. But the thing that I really remember is that for a very clear period of time, the church was committed to praying for this nation, that we were united in prayer, that we, our bubble of comfort was burst burst by the brutality of life, and in so doing, it brought us to our knees before the cross of a good God who brought healing and restoration. And I'd be, I think it'd be fair to say the most honoring, honoring thing we could do is to remember in prayer and to be the kind of church that prays for unity of this nation through Jesus Christ. And so let's take a moment to begin today in remembrance to pray not only for those who are suffering loss today, continued from that moment, but also that there would be unity for the church in prayer. Dear Jesus, we pray this morning, and we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're with us. And God, we thank you that you're with those even today who suffer loss. And I pray you would comfort them. I pray you would be near to them. That though for many it was two decades ago, for some it feels like it was just yesterday. And God, I pray just like we prayed in response to September 11th, 2001. God, I pray you would unite your church in prayer and fervency after you. God, that we would pray for healing in this nation. That we would pray for restoration to your word and to your character and to your principles. And God, you would bring peace to this nation by the power of the Holy Spirit. In your name, amen. 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 Well, this morning, we're beginning a series on the book of Ruth. And last week, we did a Sunday called Refreshing Sunday. I hope you were refreshed by that. Uh, it was a great Sunday uh, of worship and prayer and seeing God move and inviting the Holy Spirit to refresh us. And that is really kind of the kickoff for this book because I believe that this series will refresh and encourage you. And it's not often, honestly, that we read a book in this part of the Old Testament and leave feeling refreshed and encouraged. Because um, contextually, there's a lot of gnarly things happening. But I want to encourage you that the book of Ruth is such a special book because it refreshes and encourages us. If you have ever asked, where is God? This is a great book for you. If you've ever asked, what, where is God when, when I don't have the dreams and the visions? I'm not seeing clearly. I, I don't know the way forward. Then this is a great book for you. It, it, if you have ever asked, where is God when tragedy after tragedy comes against my faith? If you've ever asked, is a life of integrity in tough times actually worth it? If you've ever asked, can anything great come out of my ordinary life of faith? If you've ever asked, how can I actually be refreshed and encouraged in a difficult life? Then I want to encourage you, this book is for you. This book is encouragement. It's not just encouragement for those going through trials. It's encouragement for all kinds of people who are asking these questions about how God operates even amidst suffering. 
And so there's a big idea that we're going to see today as we look at Ruth chapter 1. And normally I would save it for kind of the pinnacle moment of the sermon, but I'm just going to give it to you right now ahead of time, the big idea as we're looking at today, because I believe it's so important. I want us, if we can, to grab a hold of it as soon as possible to inform our understanding as we read Scripture. And it's this. You ready? Thank you, wife, (laughs) and other people I pay. Are you ready? All right, awesome. See, I know you guys love us. Yeah, We're in this together, guys. We got two hours of message. No, I'm just joking. We got like 20 minutes. It's this. God works for good even in the worst of times. There is a principle in Ruth and in history and church history and Jesus Christ and in your life too that God works for good even in the worst of times. I want to jump to the book of Ruth. Would you jump with me? The book of Ruth is right after the book of Judges. So if you go to the Old Testament in your Bible, you go Joshua and you go Judges. It's this really small section. So you probably in this moment when you're like through the pages, you probably went past it. You got to go back. Back a couple pages. And it's Ruth. But the words will be on the screen, so don't worry. But Ruth chapter 1, I always encourage you to follow along with your Bible if you got it. But Ruth chapter 1, it says this. In the days when the judges ruled, there was famine in the land. A man of Bethlehem of Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Okay, let's stop there with verse 1 real quick. So the book of Ruth follows judges in your Bible. If you go in in, in biblical order, the the book of Ruth follows it. But the book of Ruth is occurring during the time of the judges. So it's during the period. So if you go read the book of Judges, the book of Ruth is happening during this period of time. And the time of the book of Judges was a period of about 400 years that came after Israel went into the promised land. So, you know, Moses and the sea and then the wilderness for 40 years, they get into the promised land. Joshua leads him and he's like, hey guys, go into the promised land. Get rid of all this demon worship and crazy stuff that's happening here. All these gods that you for some reason continually choose to serve, even though how you worship them is by sacrificing your own children on fire. I don't get how that's enticing literally at all. But he's like, go in, get rid of all of that so that you can take the land. And they go in and they do about a solid 60% of that work. Which, if you've ever had any disease, like let's say uh, cancer or something, 60% is not what is needed. 100% is needed. And so they go in and they do part of the work. And so the book of Judges is really about the leaders who were raised up during this time after the death of Joshua. And if any line sums up what's happening right now in the book of Ruth, it's the final verse of the book of Judges before we get into the book of Ruth. And it says this, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's called anarchy, right? Anarchy. And anarchy, you know, if you were like one of those punk rock kids that grew up and you, you know, spray painted those A's all around but then went home to suburbia, right? Anarchy might sound like a good idea to you or you spent $60,000 on a university education, but you're like, anarchy, right? Sure, it sounds good on Reddit, but in reality, uh, it's painful, crazy, chaotic, explosive, right? Like none of us, I hope, want anarchy right now, right? But that's essentially what they were facing at the time was total anarchy. It was a really dark time in Israel's history. 
And, and there was this formula that would happen is that the people were called to, to walk with God in relationship with him and he would provide for them. And they would sin, they would turn against him. And God would send prophets to tell them to turn. They would murder those prophets. And so then God would send judgment. They would go, wait a second, we don't like this. They would cry out to God. God would raise up a judge. That judge would go in to feed an enemy. I mean, some awesome judges, all kinds of great stories. Samson, for example, was a judge, would go in and and they would defeat the enemy, and the people would be restored. They would go, yay, and then like six months later, they would be like, yeah, nah, we're out. And they would go back to sinning, and they would be in this cycle, and that is the cycle of the book of Judges. The book of Judges is simultaneously one of the more encouraging and more depressing books of the Bible. Don't read it if it's raining outside. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> and they would be in this cycle for a long time, and I, I think if we looked at the people of Israel— and we compared them to what God said their purpose was, we would say they are failing, right? The, in fact, maybe even God's purpose for them is failing because God's purpose was that they would display his righteousness and his glory, not sacrifice their children on fire to Molech, right? That was not his model. His model was not that they would turn from him, walk from him, that they would be involved in all kinds of horrific, atrocious acts. That wasn't his plan for them. That wasn't his purpose. It's that they would display his righteousness and glory. And so if you look back at them, basically in Judges and even later in the kingdom with all the different kings, you would say, not, not going well, right? Not succeeding. But I think the book of Ruth shows us something important about God. And it's that evil cannot overturn God's purpose. And even when we don't see God working, he's working. Amen? And that God works for good even in the worst of times. I'm going to keep saying that today. That God works for good even in the worst of times. And it is... Interestingly enough, it's usually those moments where the enemy thinks that he has won with such overwhelming fashion that the clear and defined work of God is revealed. There's a reason that Mao Zedong stands up and declares that the church has been destroyed only to have like the great tsunami of faith, his country enveloped by the gospel in one of the greatest gospel movements of all time. There's a reason that though after, after the, the, the spring of Iran where, where people are persecuted and Christianity is run out, that the people go, they discover Christianity, they bring Christianity into Iran and one of the greatest movements is among Persians and believers, right? Some of you are like, it is? Yes, take hope. <laughs> Have hope. Because the news is like, it's so dark. It's so. But there's something you need to know about God if you didn't know that God is working for his good purpose even in the darkest of times. Let's jump back to Ruth. Are you still with me? Okay, awesome. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. Ruth is actually kind of a short book. You can probably read the whole thing, about 25 minutes. They're doing fine back there. They're playing a game. Don't worry if you just heard your child scream. They're fine. Uh, Ruth, you can read it probably in 25 minutes, but we're just going to do chapter 1 today. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The, man, the name of the man was Elimelech. Great name. And the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Milon and Chilion. Also great. I mean, if you're having a baby soon, Chilion, consider it. 
chili and fry. Here we go. <laughs> chili and fry. That sounds like a Wendy's meal. <laughs> All right, back to the Bible. Stop distracting me, Megan. <laughs> We're trying to talk about Jesus here. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. Bethlehem, important name. They went into the country of Moab. Someone say Moab. Moab. And remained there. But Elimelech, someone say Elimelech. I know you want to. See, it feels good. The husband of Naomi died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. And the name of one was Orpah. And the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Chilean died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. There's a lot happening in there, right? So the first thing we see is there's famine in the land. Now, does all famine that happens in lands, countries, places, nations, come from God? No. Right? If a country is having famine, it's not because God has judged them, but Israel's relationship with God was unique as they were his people. So if there's some nation somewhere right now, there's a huge famine in Africa. Is God judging Africa? No. Right? There's famine. That's how the world works. Things change, seasons change, places go dry, they don't. Water's managed, good, bad, all kinds of things, right? Governments, all kinds of things happen. Was this famine a judgment from God? Probably Yes. Based off what is happening in Judges, this famine is a, is a direct judgment from God because the cost of people's sin turning from God is greater than the cost of famine. He's saying, would you return to me so that I can restore you to being my people? Leviticus 26.3, God says, if you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I'll give you the rains in their season and the land shall yield its increase and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. And then immediately following, there's 14 verses where God says, if you do not do that, then famine, then they're going to steal the seeds that you plant. Their people are going to come in. They're going to take this. I'm not going to be defending you. I'm not going to be protecting you. Armies are going to come in. They're going to wipe you out. So basically, if you are with me, then I'm with you. And if you turn away, then you turn away from my blessing. And so famine came. And so Elimelech, someone say Elimelech, facing famine decides to go to Moab, which you're like, oh, that makes sense. Go where there's food. Problem. There's a problem. Because this is a huge deal. Because remember, famine was meant to have the people of God return to him and repent and worship him and follow him. But instead, Elimelech, not everyone, just Elimelech, goes to Moab, the very place with the gods that they're worshiping instead of the God of Israel who they should be serving. In, right? He goes to the reason there's famine. <laughs> Think on that. He goes as God literally clearly says, Judges 10, people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashrets, the God of Syria, the God of Sidon, the gods of Moab. And they forsook God and did not serve him. So Elimelech goes to the place of Moab. And next, his sons take foreign wives. We're like, yeah, I mean, they're grown men. Like, they're going to take wives. That's fine and all. Marriage is neato. But God very specifically told them, do not take foreign wives. Why? Was it just some, like, deeply rooted religious xenophobia? No. It's because they worshipped these gods who were demonic. 
who demanded prices that no one should pay, and they turned from the God who longed for loving relationship. They turned from the God who wanted to be with them. He said, do not go marry these foreign wives, because the reality is your wife's going to decide who you worship. She's going to turn you. She's going to change. She's going to direct your children to someone who's not going to bless your life. And so they take foreign wives. What I think is interesting, there's actually a tragedy here that's unspoken. So the father dies, Elimelech dies, but there's another tragedy here. They take wives, it says they're there for 10 years, but you know what it doesn't ever mention in the scripture that they have? What is that? Children, right? They don't have children. They don't have children. That's a tragedy right there. The husband dies, there's no children, there's no more children. There's no children with these wives that they've taken. And then the final tragedy is all the men die. The husbands die. The sons die. Have you ever in life felt like just like one wave after the next of bad things? I'm sure you've had that season. I've had that season. You're like, what is coming next? I remember in kind of the height of, of COVID, it was like we weren't even over that. And people were like, what's the next thing? Where we live with that fear, like, what's next? I remember there was a time in my life where it felt like, like, you know, it's like when it rains, it pours, but this is like an absolute hurricane, right? Ever felt that? And I told my wife, I said, I don't want to go to bed because if I go to bed, then I have to wake up tomorrow. And if I wake up, it's just gonna, it means there's going to be another bad thing happening. I don't know if you ever felt that way. I, I mean, I've literally felt that. That's how I felt. I was like, oh, man, I just feels like there's just like one thing and another thing and another thing. So I feel like I could really identify in some sense with that feeling that I'm sure Naomi is feeling right now. It's like, oh my gosh, like there was famine. We left our home. Then my husband died. But good thing I got, I got some sons and they died and they didn't leave any kids. No one has kids. We're all alone in a foreign land. It's like, what else is there, right? What else could there be? And I think it's important that we pause here for a really quick minute, and I just want to encourage you to stay with me here, is that there's something important about tragedy you should know. And it's that sometimes tragedy is a consequence of our bad choices. Right? Sometimes we make choices that fly in the face of wisdom. Right? Sometimes in the face of godly wisdom. And the reality is when you make unwise choices... I mean, every choice has a consequence, but when you make unwise choices, there's consequences, right? If I tell my kid, hey, don't touch the stovetop, it's hot, and they grab it, is that the judgment of God or if they had made a really bad choice, right? They've made a bad choice. They've chosen something, and it was a bad choice. This would be, in the modern terms, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Has anyone ever played stupid games before in their life? I have. <laughs> won some bad prizes <laughs> in the carnival of life those are the things in the back of the carnival you don't want to win those prizes right and that's the reality sometimes but i also need you to hear this too because i don't want us to develop a, a weird philosophy or theology in this moment is other times tragedy is simply a result of living in a broken world hear me tragedy is sometimes the result of living in a broken world i know that this is the western world we have money we have comforts. We have scientific advances. We have all kinds of things. And so we are absolutely astounded by human brokenness. We're like, how could it happen? How could it be? How could it occur? Like, man, get out of the bubble. Right? Some of you are like, I live outside the bubble. I'm fully aware of what's happening, right? 
But for many of us, we're surprised by suffering because we think, man, the world's great, everybody's good. Hey, let me just tell you something. Here is a reality of the world. The world is broken, the world is sinful, and we need a Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, the world has lots of exciting, beautiful things. Nature is incredible. I mean, when's the last time we went on a hike? You're just like, wow, creation is so great. Like, friendships are amazing. There's lots of beautiful things in life. There's lots of beautiful things. But the world is also profoundly broken. The reality is many times in life you will step back and just look at the world and go, man, the world sucks. Like today. It's, you know, you step back and you're like, wow, that is rough travel around the world, you see a lot of people live in that all the time. That though there are many beautiful things, the world is not our home. I say that not to depress us, like everything sucks. Everything. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that because the world is not our home. God created Eden, but man, we destroyed it with sin. The world is not our eternal place, and that we can find peace, we can find rest, we can find hope here, and I love that. Our eternal hope, our eternal peace, our eternal rest can only be through Christ Jesus in his kingdom forever, which means in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world, as Jesus says. He said you will have anxiety, you will have trouble, but cast your anxieties onto me, for I care for you. This is not our home. But I say all that to say about suffering because I think it's important, and I hope you're with me, that just because you're suffering does not mean that God is causing you to suffer or has brought his hand against you or is punishing you. And can we just say, church, let us not look down on those who are suffering as if they have done something to incur the wrath of God, as if we have not all made bad choices, of which many we are graciously blessed enough to not have endured the full weight of, of, of the consequence of that. Some people have made the same decisions but have ended up in entirely different places, and woe to us if we judge them for that. But the reality and the blessing is maybe you're in tragedy and suffering because of nothing of your undoing but the very fact that we're in a broken world. Or maybe, if you're being honest, you're in suffering and tragedy because you made some poor choices. Can I just tell you, God loves and has a plan and purpose for your life no matter which one of those you're in today. Amen. That God is still working for your good even if you feel like, man, I have messed it up. I have ruined plan A. I, there, I've ruined plan B. I've ruined plan C. I've ruined plan D. I've ruined plan E. I've ruined all of the plans. We're out of alphabets. I'm into like Roman numerals now of plans that I've ruined for God for my life. Can I tell you, that's not how God works. There is one plan of God for your life, and that is that you would be in relationship with him and that he can take any situation as you are in relationship with him and he can bring beautiful things from it. He can create beauty in your life. Your choices do not override his power, his plans, or his purpose. He's still working. So in verse 6, everyone say with me, amen? Amen, amen. amen. Okay, verse 6. Let's, let's keep going together. Verse 6 says, Then she arose, Naomi arose, with her daughters-in-law, and returned from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. I mean, the famine's over. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. So the famine ends. God makes a way for her to return. She goes to return 
The beautiful thing about Israel at the time, you might not know this, is they had incredible provisions for widows and foreigners and people who were hurting. God was incredibly gracious. They couldn't even uh, harvest their whole field. They'd have to leave some. Right? Imagine if God took, right? They couldn't harvest all of their resources. They would leave some so that those who were poor or widowed or, or, um, or foreigners in the land could come and they could eat. So there, there's all kinds of provisions like that. So they go back to the land because she is a widow. She's a widow. And you might not know this, but in the ancient Near East, being a widow was very likely a death sentence sooner than later because you didn't have protection, you didn't have money, and you didn't have food. And you need those to live, right? So here's what happens. Verse 8 says, But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, who were walking with her, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you've dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. That's a great prayer. She says, listen, you've been good to me. You've been great daughters. But go, go find a man, right? Go back to your town. Find a man. Apparently you're young enough. You've got enough going on, right? Go find a man. Let me go. I'm not doing anything. Go back and find somebody. And they said to her, no. We'll return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in the womb that they may become your husband? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? I mean, good question. Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it's exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. The first chapter of Ruth is so profound to me because it shows two responses to suffering. The first response is Naomi's response is that God is against me and everything is hopeless. She says, I have no sons to marry. And ironically, in mentioning this, the writer does a great job of previewing one of the most important things about this book. And it's a term called the kinsman redeemer. It's actually a powerful thing about Jesus Christ, but we'll get there. You have to keep coming to church. Uh, but the kinsman, the kinsman redeemer is, is a powerful and beautiful thing where in, in their law, if a, uh, if a husband dies, then someone from his lineage could marry that woman and continue on the line, continue on the lineage and, and, and that relationship. So she would be in covenant with that family. She would remain in the family. That's a big deal, right? She would remain a part of that. The line would continue and, and continue forward. And so you would hope for a brother or some kind of... Uh, relative of a certain kind could come and say, I'm the kinsman redeemer, though uh, suffering has befallen, though, though there's death in this relationship, I will come and restore it to life in relationship and have a covenant relationship with this bride. She will be my bride and I will redeem her. Awesome. So she's introducing this, but what she's saying is like, listen, if I got pregnant tonight, are you going to wait for these babies, like, grow up, like, you're going to be old, they're going to be like, I mean, how, right? That's not going to work, right? She said, come on, man, just go. She says, but ironically, she's forgotten about something that we're going to learn later, which is she has a kinsman redeemer for one of these women. His name's Boaz. She doesn't remember she has family. She's like, I don't have anyone, just go says, the hand of God has gone out against me. There's something about when you believe that the hand of God is against you. When you believe that God is against you, it will dramatically uh, exaggerate your hopelessness. 
keeping God's against me. So she believes God is against her. So she wants to disappear. That's a response to suffering. I just want to disappear. I just want to go away. I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to be around anybody. I don't want to be a part of it. I just want to go. God is against me, everything. I'm just going to fade into the darkness. I'm going to fade into the background. And I'm not saying this to make light of her response because I think that would be incredibly foolish. She's very much suffered. But just to say that that is a response that as people we can often feel, I'm just going to disappear. Just leave me. My life is bitter. I don't want you involved in this bitterness. Just leave me. But here's what happens. Verse 15. It says, and she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people, to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to, to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Ruth's response is amazing. Ruth is a woman after God's own heart. I, I don't care if you're a man or a woman. You can learn from this incredible woman of God. It, this is amazing. Naomi says, the suffering is too much. There's no hope. Believe me, try your best somewhere else. Orpah leaves. Ruth clings to her, but not just to Naomi physically. She clings to something even more. She says, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. That's a big statement. I'm leaving behind my identity to come and to be folded into your people. Where you die, I will die. That means she's not planning on taking another husband. It means she's committed to her all the way because if she takes another husband, then she would go to a new family and leave Naomi to be a widow. She says, I'm not going to do that. She says, I'm never going to leave there, in fact. I'm never coming home. A lot of you guys, you're from other places. You moved here, right? Imagine being like, I'm never going home. That's a huge statement to make. I'm never, I'm never going to, I'm here with you. I probably won't marry. Probably won't have kids. I, I'm here with you. But her biggest commitment was, of all those, which is crazy to say, is that your God will be my God. Look, she says, she says, your God will be my God, which sounds really nice, right? When we're at church, that sounds good. Naomi just spent the past eight verses telling us that God has bitterly been against her, right? And Ruth's response is like, that sounds cool, I'm in, right? <laughs> right? Think on that for a second. It's not like, it's like, hey man, like come check out my youth group, it's so great. Like, wow, God is amazing. This is like, God has dealt bitterly with me. I, I'm stepping into sorrow, and Ruth's like, I'm with you. Yes, you're God, my God. What? Right? <laughs> There's a lot we don't know. We don't know how Ruth knows about Naomi's God. But obviously we know that Naomi is very connected with God. She understands who he is. She understands his promises. She understands how they violated the principles that he set out for them. But Ruth says, your God will be my God. He's going to be my God too. I'm choosing Yahweh amidst the suffering. That's a powerful thing. Ruth's response to suffering is to cling to God. See, Naomi's response to suffering is to shake everyone off. But Ruth's response is to cling, to hold on to. Remember, she, she had suffered too, right? 
Ruth had lost her husband. Ruth had lost her father-in-law, and now she was losing her family. She lost her sister-in-law, who's now left. She has no children, so she in many ways probably believes she's lost her future, her home, her wealth. I'm sure she had dreams. I'm sure she had passions. I'm sure she had desires for her life, and now those are gone. Ruth has also suffered loss, but her response is to cling to God in a powerful moment of commitment. This is why I find Ruth to be so amazing. She had faith to see beyond her current struggle. She was not so locked in with the comforts of the world, with her home and the place she had been. And so she pressed in to commitment. She left them for commitment. She had courage to step into the unknown, people that were unknown, a language that was unknown, a place that was unknown, a future that was unknown. But she pressed into the unknown. She had a radical commitment to the relationships appointed by God. She had a radical commitment to Naomi. So she clung to her. Man, some of us, like we, we need some Ruths in our life who in the tough times will cling to us and lead us towards God. Some of us, we need to be Ruth for somebody. We need to be the kind of person that says, no, I'm not going to let you walk off into isolation. And I know you're bitter and I know you're frustrated, but come on, like, like we, we serve the same God. God, may we all be blessed with that kind of spiritual grit in the face of suffering. It says, I don't know what's up ahead. I don't know the way out. I don't know the answer, but I'm going to trust in God. I'm going to trust in God. I'm going to trust in Yahweh because Yahweh knows, because Yahweh does, because Yahweh makes a way. I'm going to trust in him. So it says the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. You still with me, Amen. Amen? Okay, good. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. Right? They'd gone away for 10 years, and they showed back up Naomi and some foreign girl. Right? And the woman said, is that Naomi? She said to them, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? It says in the next verse, it says, and they entered in on the first day of the harvest. Here we have Naomi's response. Man, my life is bitter. My life is empty. I went away full. I came back empty. Can I ask a question? Did, did Naomi actually go away full and come back empty? I mean, I know she says it, but lots of people say in Scripture, right, they're talking, and their example isn't like a perfect example of God's Word, right? They're saying it. It's like when, the, when, uh, uh, when Joseph is trying to decipher his dream, and his father comes in and gives an interpretation. Like, these people are not living in closeness with God, and we're just like, oh, yeah, that sounds about right. Why? It's not right. It's just their worldly perspective. This is Naomi's worldly perspective. And we're like, okay, so yes, he must, this must be true. No, this is what she's saying. This is her experience. I went away full. God brought me back empty. But here's my question. Did she go away full? Were things going well? I mean, I've never fleed my home during famine, but I'm imagining the opposite of famine is full, right? Because <laughs> if, if you're in a famine, again, I'm not a famine expert, but you're not eating a lot, you're probably not full. You're definitely not rich in an agrarian society, right? And, and you, right? Like you left. It was not going well. You left. 
And then you came back and you said, I'm empty. Yes, I'm not, I'm not diminishing her loss. She has suffered greatly. I'm just talking about her perspective here for a second because I'm an outsider. I, I, you know, I'm looking at it. She said, I came back empty. I think that's interesting. Well, first of all, the famine's over. It says they came back on the first day of the barley harvest. Like They come back and harvest is happening. So they're not empty for harvest like they were when they left. And also, who is literally right next to her? Ruth. Right? Now, Ruth sounds like a solid gal, so I'm sure she wasn't offended by this. But I might be a little offended if I'm Ruth, because three verses earlier, I, like, pledged my life to you. I was like, I'll die for you. And then Naomi comes back. She's like, I have nobody. (laughs) Right? See, we laugh, but we do this. I don't have any friends. And the other person sitting at the coffee shop with you is like, cool, 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 cool. Right? I've had people come to this church to tell their friends that they're leaving because they don't have any friends and not catch the irony in that at all. <laughs> I don't know anybody. Thanks, man. Appreciate that. <laughs> no one's there for me. Like, we're literally hanging out right now. <laughs> I mean, I get, I'm getting the scene. I'm not enough for you, but ouch, right? And here's Ruth with her. Think about that. Did she have Ruth before she went? Never mind. They only went because they made a bunch of bad, disobedient to God choices, but God put Ruth in her life. And then she's looking at God going, God, I have nothing. And he's like, you only have anything because of me. But that's the way we can be. Why? Because hopelessness can blind us to the mercies of God. Here's the thing about hopelessness. And I'm not saying all these things in jest, though there is, a, as we step back sometimes, a illogical nature to our decision-making here because it's so emotional. So there is some jest in that. But the reality is that if you've suffered in hopelessness, then you know it can really blind us to the mercies of God. Think about all that Naomi's missing in this moment. She's missing Ruth, who's literally right next to her, who's probably one of the most profound people she knows who's walking in obedience with God and integrity, who's made an incredible commitment to stand by her side, and yet she's looking past. It's weird how the closest people to us we can look past, right, when we're blinded in this kind of hopeless state. She also has Boaz. Now, we haven't covered Boaz, but she said, I have no kinsman redeemer for you, but she literally does. She just doesn't remember because she can't see that because she's living in this space of hopelessness. Also, what she doesn't know and can't see is King David. How many of you ever heard of King David? King David is like the most awesome king that's not Jesus that Israel will ever have, right? And he comes through her lineage. She's like, I'm empty. It's like, no, you are most blessed. Now, you are suffering. You know what else she can't see? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, you might not know this, but Naomi and Ruth are the lineage of Jesus Christ. Could you imagine if it was like, hey, I know you think you're empty, but just so you know, the Savior of the world is going to come through your family. Be like, oh, that might change my perspective. Here's the reality. We cannot see 400 years into the future. We can just see right now. And God can give prophetic vision. And God spoke through the prophets. But the problem is that Naomi is trapped in her bitterness. And tragedy is emotional. 
And emotions are good. Feelings are good, right? But when we sit into a hopeless state, what happens is we rob ourselves of using the mind and the vision that God has given us and being open to the movement of the Holy Spirit in Him showing and revealing the good things. And we miss often the things that are so near to us that are such a blessing because we're looking at everything that's broken. We see everything missing, everything broken, everything wrong, but we forget that God has and is and will be working for the good of his children. Think about this. Right now, Naomi is desperate, but God has been working for her good. He brought her Ruth. God is working for her good. He brought her into a place of abundance. The famine is over. He brings her in on the first day of harvest, and he will be working for her good. He's not only bringing a kinsman redeemer, but he's bringing David and Jesus Christ through her lineage. That is amazing. That is amazing. Some of us, this is why it's so important, this isn't in my notes, but that why we are Ruth for others, because in suffering, it's so hard to see like that. And sometimes we need to begin to get vision for others and encouragement for others. We need to cling to them. We need to say, hey, look, I know, but look who loves you. And what happens, though, is, you know, usually when people tell you what good things you have in your life when you're suffering, you just get mad at them. So just know they're going to get mad at you. They might get a little frustrated, but it's part of the healing process. Sometimes, you know, it's just, you got to cry, you got to work through it. That's reasonable. But we need to be that because there's something about recognizing that even in the darkest times, God is still working for the good of his children. One of my favorite heroes in the Bible is Joseph. How many of you heard of Joseph? How many of you heard of Joseph? Thank you, Gaetana. Yeah, let's go. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Joseph is amazing to me because Joseph had also suffered, also sent to a foreign land, also dealt with loss. Joseph had dreams and visions of what God was going to do in his life. He had dreams of what was possible. And his brother said, you know what? We don't like that. We're going to kill you. And they sold him into slavery, which is a pretty ruthless brother move. And he goes into slavery and he's, he's uh, wrongfully accused of rape and sent to prison which goes then kind of about how it goes now and he's in prison in a dark place and you would think well the dream's over he's in a dark place but even in the darkest places God is working for the good of his children and so he's raised up and he's brought out and he's brought to life and he shares and he saves the people God uses him to save the people and he says in Genesis 50 yes 50 the book is really that long says as for you to his brothers you meant evil against me but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today what the enemy meant for evil God used for good now did God cause the evil so he could figure out a way to save his people no God can do whatever he wants he could just save them that's how he works but God says listen though the enemy uses it for evil he's in the constant business of taking what the enemy meant for evil and using it for good to take dark places and break forth in the light to take countries that say we've killed God and say no you haven't you have just begun the most important awakening of the Holy Spirit in the modern era that's how our God works. Even when it's dark, even in the worst times, at a national level, in a historical level, and at a personal level today with you. Even in the darkest times, God is working. Even when you cannot see or feel God working, I want to say, have faith that he's working. Why? 
Why have faith that he's working? Because not only does the word tell us, but we have testimony that he does. Those of you who are believing for healing today, in fact, Ben, you can come up. Those of you who are believing for healing today, can I tell you, there are people in this church who have been healed by the mighty God. Right? How many of you have seen God heal? Just raise your hand. How many have seen God heal? Perfect. If you're believing for healing, take note. God heals. Man, there's some of you who are believing for a miracle baby today. You're believing for God to do something, to bring life forth. Can I tell you, there are miracle babies here today because God moves and God heals and restores. Some of you, you're believing for jobs. You're, I'm in a dark place. I've just been unemployed and I'm trying and I feel like people look down on me because I don't, I don't have a job and it, it affects you. It brings shame into your heart even and you, you struggle with that. You struggle, in fact, to connect with people because you're worried about what they might be thinking about you. Can I tell you that God still works for the good of his people? That that shame's not from him that he loves you, that he cares for you, that he's for you, that he's with you. Some of you, you're believing for family to be restored. Can I tell you, you're in a place where families have been restored, where relationships have been renewed, where those who are far from God have been brought near to God. Can I tell you, this is faith, right? This, what we are in as followers of Christ, is a faith. It takes faith. You say, well, I can't see it. Like, yeah, that's why it's faith. See, faith doesn't work. It's like, I can see it, therefore I know. That's control. Faith is, I trust in who you are, and so I trust in what you'll do. You need faith to do a lot of things. You need faith to have a relationship. I trust you, so I trust that you will. We have to have faith to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. I trust you, so I trust that you can. I trust that you will. That's why Hebrews 11 says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. There's a conviction that says, God, even though I don't feel it, my faith transcends my feeling. We cannot be ruled by feeling, but we can submit in faith to God. And the beautiful thing is, even when we're feeling anxious, when we're feeling upset, we're feeling like nothing will ever change, when we submit in faith to God and say, God, I cling to you like Ruth, I trust in you, he brings us peace for that feeling of anxiety. He brings us joy in that place of hopelessness. Isn't God amazing? He's amazing. And so the beautiful thing is today, if you are in the place of saying, man, I, I feel like I'm in a situation where it's surrounded by fear or darkness or difficulty, or maybe you're one of those people, you're like, man, I'm just afraid of what's next. Like what's coming. I don't I do not hope for the future. I'm afraid of what's next. Can I just tell you trust in God and he will give you rest and peace because despite the worst of times God is working for the good of his children. And like Ruth and Naomi, you have two choices today. You can give up, you can throw up your hands, you can become bitter. You can isolate from God and others. Or like Ruth even amidst your suffering, even without answers for the future, you can cling to God. You can lean into his promises. You can trust in his word. You can receive the hope and healing and joy that comes through him. You can be refreshed and encouraged by his Holy Spirit present with you. See, it's not about denying the struggle in the world around us, but by submitting to God that we receive peace and joy. The question is, will I actually trust God and put my faith in Him today amidst my circumstances? Say, God, I trust that even in the darkest times, you work for good. 
Would you stand with me this morning? Even in the worst of times, God is working for good. Hear me today. Even in the worst of times, God is working for good. This last week, I, uh, I officiated my sister-in-law's funeral on Tuesday. This was an interesting message to write on Wednesday. But I officiated my sister-in-law's funeral, and she died suddenly, tragically. She's a few years older than my wife, and we flew up to Seattle and to preside over the funeral, and I was very ready, very ready in the, you know, beforehand to do it, but in the moment, I was overwhelmed by loss, and people ask a lot of good questions about loss when they're suffering, and my father-in-law is just such a man of God. I, I love him so much. He got up, and he spoke the truth about leaning on the Lord. <laughs> when you mourn, when you suffer, when you struggle. And I saw the peace that not only it brought to him, but to his family. And some of you, you're leading families during difficult times. And can I just encourage you, the greatest peace you can bring in your family is by you personally today, leaning on the Lord and saying, God, I trust in you and allowing the Holy Spirit to minister to your heart. Can I tell you right now, that God in many of your lives is laying the foundation for greater things to come right now. He's preparing the way for life to burst forth. He's preparing the way for good things to come about and to happen. But right now, our hearts, what we need to do is say, even God, even if I don't see it, I'm going to trust in you and have hope in you. So I want to pray for you today. Would you just bow your heads, you and Jesus, right now? And this, the band's going to sing this song. And David wrote this, this, this part that says, Surely I'll see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Some of you are here today, and you've been going through struggles and difficulty. And right now, you just need to speak in faith over your life. Surely I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Surely I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And I'm going to invite you in just a moment to respond and worship and to have a moment with God. But right now, wherever you are, if you're here and you're saying, I'm, I'm in the struggle, I'm facing difficulty, and I'm just praying, God, stir up my faith that I could trust in you. If that's you, would you lift your hands? I want to pray with you today. If you're saying, God, I'm facing difficulty, I'm facing struggles, and I'm praying this morning, God, show me, reveal, give me faith that you're working even when it's hard. Let me pray. God, I pray right now by the power of your Holy Spirit. I thank you that in every circumstance you're with us. I pray in every circumstance that you are for us. So God, I pray even in the difficulty, even in the struggle, God, I pray right now that you would touch every heart by the power of your Holy Spirit, that they would know, like we've been saying this whole service, that they are precious and loved by you, that you are with them, that you are working good things. And even though there's difficulty, God, that you bring about and you will bring about and abundance and a joy and a peace on their life. You have not left them. You have not forsaken them. And God, I pray right now an abundance of joy upon them by the power of the Holy Spirit. As they say today, I trust in you. I lean against you. Let's worship the Lord. Thank you for listening to the Banner Church Podcast. We hope this message was impactful for you. Check the episode notes to visit our website, follow us on social media, and subscribe to our podcast. We'll see you again next week.